I hope, chapter 7 in front of you. We're going to go verse by verse through uh, uh, 1 through 15. And uh, this is part of a sermon that's entitled The Temple Sermon. And it is a sermon that is given as a discourse through chapter 10. It is quite severe. Uh, it is quite difficult. It, it may be between it and the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, just the two greatest sermons that have ever been delivered. <clears throat> but I want to ask a question and give you an answer to the question immediately, and this is the question. What's wrong with religion? What's wrong with religion? And the answer is, what is wrong with religion is hypocrisy. That is the answer, is hypocrisy. Religion should make a difference in our lives, don't you agree? A religion should make a difference, and by religion I mean to set out the outward behavior, the practices, the ethics, and the rituals that you and I do and that, that mark ourselves as followers of the way, as believers. Um, for so long we have heard Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It is a religion, but it is the only one that has a relationship. It is a religion, but it is the only one that has a relationship with the triune God. And so believing in God means we ought to love and value what God loves and what God values. And therefore we ought not just be nicer to each other, but we ought to lay down our lives for each other. And yet religion, however, doesn't seem to solve this problem today uh, because when we think about all the challenges and the problems we see today, uh, religion will not solve it. It will not solve it. And what's wrong with it? Why shouldn't it solve it? Why doesn't it solve it? Why, why doesn't it make a difference? Why does that which is called Christian not make a difference for so many? As where others, it is the difference to everything. Well, what is it? Well, let me just give you a concept that I'm going to be speaking about quite often this next fall. And by way of introduction to the next fall, this fall, let me tell you what we're going to be doing. Beginning next week, I'm going to begin a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the Gospel of John. As you know, on Wednesday night, I'm doing John's epistle, it, the epistle of John. This will absolutely be magnificent for us to go through these two things together. It's all being recorded. It's on CD and all of that. We'll have the camera back up this next week and perhaps be able to, we have another way to stream that we're, we're ready to show you that will be easy in the event that you don't make it. But I have become convinced of something in, in, in the course of, of study and whatnot. And, and as you, those of you that have known me 10 years know that when I believe that I have been right, there was no convincing me otherwise until God seems to convince me otherwise. And, and part of my training and upbringing has always been that the most important thing of the people of God is evangelism. It's not. It's worship. We have people going out across this country banging on doors and evangelizing people, but there is no visible difference. And then we have many, many, if not most, that are convening services that they call worship that are not. Even this morning in Dallas, 
the pulpit of, of a most prominent church even now, and you've read it in the paper because you've seen the advertisements for it. The pastor is not standing in the pulpit. A politician is. And, uh, or there's been a, a different commentator from a particular network speaking. That, that is not what the church is about. But when you are a people that calls that worship because of culture, well, then you have moved into religion. And so if this begins to rub you, let me show you why you, and, and, and give you comfort in this. So I want to just very quickly just give you five things because this about how you're going to feel, and then I'm going to exposit the text, about your identity. Your identity. You view, all of us view everything from the prospects or perspective rather of our, our identity. I shared this Wednesday night, but this is the fuller of it uh, that I did not give. And so I just want you to write this down as we prepare to look at this text because you will empathize with the people of Judah as I show you this text. And you will be encouraged because I'm encouraged you will not make the same mistake but we must hear the teaching of Scripture. All human beings seek meaning. So write this down. All be human beings seek meaning in their identity. You seek meaning to your existence. You seek that meaning. And to that end, existing is tied to our identity, who we are. There was a man that was captured during World War II that was a Polish Jew. And he was put in a Nazi concentration camp. He was a lawyer. And they kept interviewing him and interviewing him or interrogating. And, and no one knew how this Polish Jew survived the concentration camps of Nazi Germany or Nazi-occupied territories because they killed every Polish Jew they could find. Well, this man did not find his identity in his nationality. He found it in his religion. So they said, then how did you survive as a Polish Jew? He said, I told them I was a French Jew. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you're one of these kind of black and white, no gray area kind of people, you think that man has no integrity because he lied. He's not French. He's Polish. Your identity might, in that case, might be totally, you can, I cannot tell a lie. So therefore, you're a George Washington type. So you'd be dead. But at least you would not have violated your conscience. But his identity was not his Polishness or his Frenchness. It was his Jewishness. One of the things you and I would be very wise to remember is that we are Christians. We belong to the one who gave his life for us. And that banner should be the banner that rises over us no matter what. Are you an American Christian or are you an Iranian Christian? Well, wherever you are, whoever's sovereign over you will make a big difference because if you're an Iranian Christian, or let's even use a more extreme one, I am an Afghani Christian. We know what's going to happen to you. And so what would you decide to say in Afghanistan? I'm an Afghani Christian or I'm an American Christian? You might have to decide, am I an American? Well, I'm going to tell you something. If you have an American passport, there is very little anyone's ever going to do to you wherever you are. You know why? Because we're still the strongest, the biggest, and baddest enemy you could ever have. America is 
still mighty. You need to remember that. And as her homes and the families turn back to Christ, which they are, as the homes turn back to Christ, and then the businesses that those homes go into and work in, eventually you will see the politic, the body politic that makes the laws begin to shift. Why can you say, you might say, how can a 49-year-old man come up with such truth? Because it is the truth. There are people in this country that are praying for Jesus Christ to do His work, to turn the fathers back, to their hearts back to their sons, to, for families to be a unit. They told Care Grace the other day, the nuclear family is dead. Well, it may be dead, the nuclear family, but I'm going to tell you what, God's family's not. And those are the ones that will worship Him in spirit and truth, come heck or high water. Amen? And so, our, so I find my identity in that. But this is how we all find identities. Five pillars. Just write these down. I'm not going to explain them, but these are the five pillars to your identity. This is just a fact. I'll probably do a marker board conversation on this another day. Belief. Number one is belief. What you hold true. What do you value and hold true? Now, I'm not, and I'm going to say that to you is your truth. But I've told you what we know true truth is. And that's God's truth. But belief is what you, the specific ideas you hold true. Number two, rituals that are personally meaningful to you, that, that are customs, ceremonial or otherwise, holidays, uh, rites of passage and so forth. Those things are important to you. Rituals. Number three, allegiance. Allegiances. Those are the felt loyalties to an individual or a group, a family member an authority figure, a nation, or, a, or, a, or, or uh, an ancestor, or so forth. An allegiance. Number four, values. These are the guiding principles or overarching ideas, often conveyed through a single word, such as justice, or compassion, or freedom. Those words are powerful words. How about fortitude? Words like that, and wisdom. Those are powerful words. And last of all, number five, emotionally meaningful experiences. These all represent the pillars of your foundation. These are the things that speak to who you are, what you hold important, and gives cognitive meaning to your life. For the, for the Polish Jew, his value, identity, was what? It was his allegiance to his religious identity as a Jew, not his nationality. That's what it was for him. That's how he survived to tell the story. It was not important for him to be thought of as French. It was important for him to be known as a Jew. Okay? So those are different for people. So this is how, this is, this along with your reason and your emotions determines how you feel threatened. Do you know why people get in emotional arguments? I'm sure, Larry, you, you learned this probably when you were doing mediation, but you, you didn't learn it. You just probably seen it codified in all your years as a judge. But do you know why emotional arguments just really get you going? You know, somebody can say, you know, tomorrow we're all going to have to, 
we're all going to have to do something that's just totally again. We're all going to have to turn this in or take this or do something like that tomorrow. And it gets you upset and going. And the reason is because we feel threatened. And what we feel threatened in is our identity, that our belief or our ritual, our allegiance, our values, our emotionally meaningful experience are somehow being challenged. Well, that is exactly what is happening right here when Jeremiah preaches this sermon. Because Israel, at this time, Ephraim up to the north has already been destroyed. Israel never had a good king. They didn't even have a half good king. They never had a good king. But now you come to Judah, and Judah's day is coming. And Jeremiah is sitting here preaching. He's the weeping prophet. God has commissioned him, given him a hard word to say to the people, and they did not listen. They did not listen, and consequently... And consequently, God did what He told Jeremiah He would do that He told the people. So let me give you this phrase. And then, as I told you, that worship must be the primary thing for the believer. And out of it all things flow. Let me give you this phrase and we shall begin. Worship is not about appearing. Worship is not about appearing. It is an active, lively part of the complete sacrifice God desires from all who claim to be His. Worship is not about appearing. It is an active, lively part of the complete sacrifice God desires from all who claim to be His. Now notice where this is all taking place. In chapter 7, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, to the Lord, stand in the gate. This is at the gate of the temple, the house of the Lord, and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord for all of Judah. You enter these gates to worship the Lord. So he's standing there at the front door. He would be at the narthex or at the foyer at the Baptist church. That's where he would be. He would be standing there as they came in. And so the temple in the Old Testament it was characterized by this awesome beauty. It's magnificent inside and out. Inside you had the golden incense altar and the lampstand. You had the wooden cherubim that had been covered in gold that stand over the mercy seat and the holy of holies there. And, it, and each were ten feet tall with wings pointing forward and inside the holy place known as the Kodesh and in the innermost part was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh HaKodeshim. There inside this 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot room, there was the Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of the Lord and it was the presence of the Lord. And there inside were two stone tablets and a jar of manna and the rod of Aaron. And in this place, in the temple, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, was the very presence of God. It's, it was like it glowed in between the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant known as the mercy seat. And the presence of God was characterized by the physical presence of the temple itself. And this place was known as the dwelling place of where God is. It was a place, therefore, since God was there that they offered the sacrifices under the commandment of God 
in the way God told them to do it. Sin offerings and burden offerings were burnt by the Levite priests on behalf of the people and for their sins. And it was, it was there that the altar, that the offering of atonement of sins were offered unto God on the day of atonement. And in, in one sense, you could see it as very ritualistic. I am so grateful that we are covered by grace and do not have to do these things. But the people had to go through certain rituals in order to sacrifice. There would be, there would be having to wash and then having uh, blood put on the end of your, your, your thumb and on the tip of your big toe. And then you would have to be anointed with oil and all of these things. And these rules were enforced at which the animals should be sacrificed and in what manners they should be killed and for what offering they should be killed for. And this was the point. The people were to give back what had already been given to them through God's grace. So this is the context of what's taking place right there. But here is the great problem. The great problem is, is that we look at the Scripture and we see that they misunderstood what God really wanted. Just the other morning, I was on the last two weeks, I have visited with many Indians over the phone. And I have told them this as I have told you. You must continue to preach the gospel to yourself. They absolutely received that with complete confusion. Believing they are saved already, what do they need the gospel for? The gospel is not for getting saved, it's also for being saved that the curse has been broken. We've got to remember it's not by the blood of bulls and goats, but it is by the blood of the Lamb of God that has covered us. And we say, well, I have sinned terribly before God, and yet what do I do? Do I just go in sorrow? No, I also go in the grace of pardon. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is a message we must continually also preach to ourselves. Amen? This is foreign to the church today. This is very foreign. We think the gospel's for other people. It is for anyone, the whosoever, believes. Not to believe, has believed, believes. Jesus Christ is your pardon. Amen? So you beg His pardon yet over and over again. John Newton, I know one thing. I am a great sinner and yet He is a greater Savior. And he writes the song, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Why do we sing the song? Because the grace is amazing. And it's a message we must continually preach to ourselves. You say, well, it's going to cause us to become loving and kind. And we're going to become gracious to other people. We might be little, become liberal or something. We might actually, people might actually want us to be around because we're actually become happy. And uh, they might accuse us of being hypocrites because they see us fall and yet we get up and we go on with a smile instead of laying down and being miserable. You know what? I think most of us have tried the other way and it's just not as fun. Wouldn't you agree? We need to practice the gospel. But unfortunately, they misunderstood this. The majority of overall religions today, all the religions today, feel that Israel, Israel's faithfulness to God was determined by their sacrifices. Now I could spend a whole day on this for you. That we think our relationship to God is dependent upon our sacrifice. How we sacrifice our tithes and our time and our talent. 
then if we do this, God will be pleased with us. That's not true. It's not true at all. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is what secures the relationship with God. It's not my sacrifice, it's His sacrifice. But folks look at Israel and say, because they were faithful to sacrifice, therefore God would be faithful to them. And so if you go farther, it teaches that Israel needed a pure heart when they sacrificed. This goes on later in the temple sermon. So the temple's very important. Jeremiah finds himself at the temple gate asking why. Many of the people of Israel loved going to the beautiful house of God. The majority of the people participated in the ritual sacrifices. Any of the people experienced uh, going there up to God's house and the presence of God, except that's as far as they went. They got the experience. They got the look. They got the feel. But there was no credible change in their relationship with God. There was nothing that changed. And so God came to Jeremiah, whom God has told them, stand in the gate and preach the message. A message that they needed to hear and a message we need to hear today. And so what did he do? He began, number one, with the proclamation of the word of the Lord. The proclamation of the word of the Lord. Verses 1 through 7. What you have here is a place and time where the verse talks about the commission. Verses 1 and 2 talk about the commission of Jeremiah by God to preach. At the, and he says, the gate of the Lord's house, this is the entrance between the outer and the inner courtyard of the temple. And by standing there, Jeremiah would be able to address the people in the outer courtyard from the tops of the steps. So this is where he was. He was there. And what was he doing? Who was he preaching to? He was preaching to the religious people of the day. He was not preaching out on the corner of Benihuda Street. He was preaching right there at the entrance to where the priests could go in to the, to the inner court. And so he is standing there at ground zero. And this passage is ad addressing the religious people. And so what is he saying to them? Look at verse 3. In verse 3 he says, Amend, you can write down, repent of your ways and your deeds, and I will dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's three times he says it. For if you truly amend your ways and, you deed, and your deeds and you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, if you don't oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place and in the land that I gave your fathers forever and forever. And so here's what's taking place. He is standing there at the gate. Jeremiah's address would not conform though to a modern day sermon in that it would not be a 27 minute or one hour sermon with points. It was an extended discourse. And what you see here, and it needs to be noted, that the people that are being addressed in the text are worshipers of the Lord. They are the worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
This word worship denotes this prostrate or prostration before a superior. This is obeyance. This is obeyance, rather, that would, incur, it would, be, would occur as part of an etiquette in an eastern court when a vassal came to an overlord. So think of the Lord here as the divine overlord. And the actions that are considered worthy are to humble oneself, to bow down before Him. And in the Old Testament covenant context where the Lord was recognized as God and King of His people, it was an act of acknowledging His high status and the worshiper's lowly dependence upon Him. Alright? So this is the idea. This was what the people coming to the temple were saying by their actions. But they were strangers to the reality of heart submission to the Lord. So this is what I want you to take away from this very first part of the proclamation of the word of the Lord. Here it is. People become religious to get what they want. People become religious to get what they want. He says, repent and you will avoid the consequences. The people of Judah had trusted in deceptive words instead of the words of the Lord. And they think that going through the rituals of religion will protect them. They thought that the temple was like the ultimate lucky rabbit's foot. And this kind of temple theology is empty superstition. And what they really needed is what God called for, a radical repentance and a profound spiritual renewal. So you see in verses 1 and 2 of the proclamation of the Word of God, you see the commission of the prophet. And in verses 3 through 7, you see the reformation that is being required. The reformation that is being required. Look at verse 3. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. The word ways or path refers to the general lifestyle. It talks about their characteristic mode of conducting themselves. Whereas actions are specific pieces of conduct. So it says how you live your life and your particular actions are they based upon a general pattern. And their general pattern was they were religious. They were religious. And he says to them, reform. In other words, reform, repent, because their works and their actions and the character of their heart does not conform or correspond to what the Lord requires. And so what happens? They continued enjoyment of this privilege of going to the temple in worship, showing people how religious they were, showing other folks that, you know, to get what they want. They continued this enjoyment. Their occupation of the city and the land depended upon them remaining loyal to, the, to God. And so he thought, they thought this was all okay. And so it was precisely the point that had obscured the thinking of the day. And that's precisely the point that obscures this truth to us today. It is the idea... 
It is the idea that because we live in grace, that we can do whatever we want. We cannot. We have been bought at a price, the Bible says. It's he has, give, he has taken our life and given us His. And when you look at what is taking place in our country, and you look at specifically the place of, of the, where the greatest evil is, you will not find it in the halls of Congress. You will not find it at the halls of the financial institutions or even the universities. You will find it in the church, or those places that call it the church. Because people still want to take care of number one, and that's themselves. And they can feel good on Sunday to get what they want in religion. And then Sunday afternoon when the cowboys do something wrong, they can talk like they just got out of the Navy, like they hadn't even been to church. Right? That's exactly where they are. And then we see our country and our nation falling apart and you see Christians thinking that Christianity is American. It's not. It's otherworldly. It's not of this kingdom. It's of another kingdom. Right? And so while all the distraction of COVID and all the distraction of the vaccine has been going on, right now the Congress is passing a bill to federalize the funding of abortion on demand. Right now, the Congress has before it the, the, uh, the IRS invasion into your deposits. Annual withdrawals from all local banks will now be reported to the IRS. They're doing that. And we think the loss of freedom has come from this vaccine thing, and that has been the smokescreen. Whereas just in the last 10 or 15 days, a million people have come across the border. And all of this, and we're looking at all of the wrong things. But I'm going to tell you what, all we've got to look at is to the Word. Because God blesses His people. That's what brought about the being of this country. How does a band of American rebels who speak the king's English that come over here on ships and live here for about a hundred years, how do they rise up and defeat the British army? It has to be God. How is it that George Washington is shot by a sniper except the bullet misses him and goes through his coat? How does this happen? How do these things happen? How, have, how were we able to, to defend ourselves in the past? Because the people of God prayed. I want to show you something. You don't find anywhere in the Bible where the disciples go to Jesus and say, teach us how to preach. What do you see him do? Teach us how to. Why did they do that? Was it because of his words? No, because of his life. That's what America needs. That life was yet once vibrant in this country. And yet it has become much more easy to be religious to get what we want instead of God being all that we want. And we're being brought to our knees. But I'm going to tell you why I'm hopeful. This is why I'm hopeful. Because there are pastors in this country that are standing up in preaching God's Word again for His glory, not for your success as a CEO, not for your success and your feelings, 
He, they are preaching what is truly applicable in the eyes of God because Christians are saying today, but we have Christ, we have Christ, we have Christ. James, the apostle, says, you have faith, good. I will show you my faith by my works. These people were the covenant people of God, yet they did not demonstrate they belonged to Him because their works were not evident. The same is true for us. We're not saved by works. We're saved to work. We're not saved to worry. We're not saved to panic. We're not saved to lose our equanimity or our, or our joy or anything. We are saved to consciously and courageously stand before people as children of God that come what may, once we've done all to stand, we shall stand. And it's going to be a glorious thing when we don't have to stand anymore because we know what is at the end of the road, and it's Jesus. Amen? And this is happening today. There are men today standing up and preaching yet again the Scripture, not for political solution, but for kingdom principles. And so there Jeremiah the weeping prophet said, do not, do not trust in deceptive words. And you see the lie was not open paganism, but it was the popular distortion of the covenant religion that had lulled Jerusalem into a false sense of security just like grace does. People think because they're in grace they can go do whatever they want to. They think because of, 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 a, of a misunderstood doctrine known as the priesthood of the believer that all of a sudden they're entitled to do things they're not given sanction to do in Scripture or that because of the priesthood of the believer, they can take the scripture and make it a private interpretation. This is an area you will get under someone's skin related to identity. Because when you tell them, that, but this is not what the text says, and then the names start flying, it's because they feel threatened. If you can understand they feel threatened, then you can visit with them from the basis of their threat. And you don't have to have an emotional conflict. The only way to lose, by the way, an emotional conflict is to believe you can't solve it. The moment you believe that a conflict cannot, is non-negotiable, then it is not negotiable. That's it. All right? But that's a whole other lesson. That's another day. That's for philosophy 206. Furthermore, in thinking that the ancient Near East temple was not primarily considered the place of public worship, it was the dwelling place of the deity that protected the city, they said there's no way God would ever take away this city do not trust deceptive words. This is the temple. Many hekel, many hekel, many hekel. Do not trust the temple or trust in these words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What he is saying that, that y'all are in, you all are enjoying the blessings of the covenant on the basis of covenant obedience. And the covenant provided a responsible security. Now listen, this is important. But it did not sanction presumption. This is the great Achilles heel of many today is presumption. When I hear people saying, I decree, I declare, I render and all that, that is presumption. God must be able to be God and we must be able to be not God. And, what, and that was what was going wrong in Jerusalem. So write this down. They believed the temple guaranteed them safety. The temple guaranteed them nothing if they were living in rebellion. In verse 5 he goes on to say, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, then what will take place? What will take place is this, a right behavior in accordance to the norms of covenant. 
It's the idea that the first stipulation is that they deal with each other justly. Number two, notice the text. If you do not oppress the alien or the, or the fatherless or the widow. It, 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 and you know what this means? It means extortion. The accumulation of wealth that can only be gained by robbing another. So there's nothing, it's not speaking against wealth. It's gaining wealth by robbing another. What brought our nation to its knees 20 years ago was not 9-11. It was the Enron debacle because of this very thing, this extortion of other people. Number three here, he talks about do not shed innocent blood. Blood guilt was incurring the slay one, was, was incurred by slaying someone who did not deserve to die. Ladies and gentlemen, the great scourge on America is abortion. It is the great scourge of America. God has spoken about blood guilt on the land. Now people have come to me before and said, you shouldn't speak of this because there may be people in your congregation that have had abortions. Well, I may be different than the rest of you because I've actually ministered to those people. Two of them over at the last church. The very first church. And in between. I'm not, I'm not want to oppose those people, but I want to tell you something. If, you're going to, if you are going to tell us that women have to get vaccinated against their will then we must claim Roe versus Raid rights in saying a woman is right to choose what she does with her own body. Where is the hypocrisy in this? We tried that this week at TWU. We lost, but we tried. We tried. Graciously and kindly, but we're not done. i got to come see Larry. The reality of it is simply this. We are slaughtering the innocent. Well, it's a woman's right to choose what she does with her own body. It's not her body. It's the baby's. And God has already said what He says about this. One of the reasons He killed the Amalekites, they wanted to, He wanted them wiped out, because the Amalekites went to the Hebrew women, opened up their bellies while they were still alive, and pulled their unborn babies out and murdered them, and then killed the mothers. God, does you see abortion in the Old Testament? You know, folks say they do it with a wire hanger. I'm going to tell you, there's actually evidence of how many wire hanger abortions have been done, and I think there is one truth that is undeniable. Any woman that ever did it never did it twice. There is not enough evidence to justify 60 million lives. And God is telling these people here, you do not shed the blood of innocent people. If you, if you oppose capital punishment because you may feel the innocent could die, then how much more should you stand from the bell tower and scream to die of the slaughter of children for convenience? I know it is hard, but see, you find an identity in this issue. To me, this is the whole kid and caboodle for me. What you do with the innocent determines what you'll do with anybody. And God says it. He codifies it. And then He goes on, If you go on not to follow other... If, if you do not follow other gods, not your own. Today we have other gods that are not our own. Our belly, our bank account, our 201K. You say, I thought they were 401K. Not since Enron. This shows the lie. It was just a distorted perception. We do not have any truth coming out from the media today. There's no truth. And yet there is a peacefulness and a pleasantness knowing that God is in control even of the liars. 
even of the liars. He knows, and you know what? Alistair Begg, the great Scottish preacher over in Ohio, he made this comment the other day. He says, vengeance is of the Lord, and when God brings his vengeance, it will be perfect and just. So we don't need to worry about vengeance because it's going to come and it'll be perfect, but we need to make sure that there should be no cause for him to find a reason to have vengeance in us. I will tell you the world will receive our message if we will go tell them what Christ has done for them instead of spending our wheels and our time telling them how wrong they are. When they come to Christ, they will find this out. Just remember the woman at the Samaritan woman. What did Jesus do? He just visited with her and finally said, You know, you're shacked up with five guys and you're living, or five dudes, and you picked up a sixth. And I think, honestly, she was trying to pick him up. I really do. I think I can really convince you of that. That's the kind of woman she was. But what happened to her? In the presence of Christ, she'd be changed. And here you have her leading the city out, saying, I found him, I found him, I found him. She becomes an evangelist. Right there and then. Jesus is transformative. And so what do, you, what do you take away from this? Look at verse 7. He says here, I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave you and your fathers forever and ever. So he tells them, stop doing this stuff. Your reformation is required. What is required for, of you? That you amend your ways that you practice justice between a man and his neighbor, that you don't oppress aliens, orphans, or widows, and you don't shed innocent blood nor walk after other people to your own, other gods that you do not know to your own ruin. So he gives them this proclamation of the word of God, commissions the prophet, and says reformation is required. All right? Number two is the description of the nation's apostasy. This will take half the time, the rest of it. And I don't even know what time it is. Oh my gosh. The description of the nation's apostasy in verses uh, 8 through 12, 7 through 8. Just look what it says. People use religion to, to make, write this down. People use religion to fake a relationship with God. Write it down. People use religion to fake a relationship with God. Notice here in verse 9, he says, and I'm just going to skip a bunch of stuff. You... Will you still murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? You know what he's done there? He has named six of the Ten Commandments. The foundation of the covenant relationship between the Lord and His people are found in the Ten Commandments. That is the covenant that He made. Exodus chapter 20. And the people violated the basic agreement of their relationship with God, and they entered the temple saying, We're safe. People enter the temple of God today or the house of God saying they're safe knowing what they have just done when they are in a state of unrepentance and willful unrepentance. We will never become sinless. We will never stop sinning. But the mark of Christianity in our life, the mark that we have been placed in grace, the more we recognize the gospel and the grace, the more we are driven to the bend of our heart is to be pleasing to God, not pleasing to our flesh. This is the change. Why? Because the curse is broken. I cannot, I, I, I can't push strong that enough, but I can't go any farther with this. And so you have this idea then is that you have the description of the nation's apostasy. They're breaking the commandments of God. And then he gives the number three, number three, the announcement of judgment. This section is the climax of the passage. In verses 13 through 15. 
He says in verse 12, actually, but go now, to, I'm going to read it from the New International Version. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell there first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Verse 13, And now because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking to you, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave you and your fathers, so I will do to Shiloh. So very quickly, let me just summarize this. What is he saying? Shiloh, 400 years prior, well, for, for 400 years, this place called Shiloh was the center of worship for about 400 years. And, when, and it housed the building that contained the Ark of the Covenant. It housed the temple, the, the tabernacle. And the people of Jerusalem thought that they were better than the northern tribes because they had Solomon's temple. And the Lord draws a comparison between Shiloh where the tabernacle used to dwell, and Jerusalem, where the temple now dwells. So these people here in Jerusalem think they're better than the ones that got destroyed before them, Ephraim, Israel. It's, it's the same logic that says we've just never tried socialism the right way that you're hearing today. It failed in Russia, it failed in Poland, it failed in Cuba. Americans need to try socialism because we'll get it right this time. You can't get it right. Because when you've taken everybody's money, there's no money left, right? That's exactly their posture. This is their posture. They thought they were better. They were better because they had the temple. And if, but here's what God says. He says, look, I didn't spare Shiloh. Go see it. Go up there and look at it. Go out there and look at Shiloh and look and see what you can find. It was destroyed. God utterly wiped it out. It, it is gone. It has been disappeared. Uh, and so they boasted we are safe. They had all this confidence. And you see, it seems only natural to assume the uppermost in their consciousness was their confidence in the time of political instability that Yahweh would guarantee the safety of their state because they had the temple and God says, oh no, I will not go look at Shiloh. That's where my presence was and I've destroyed it. And I've destroyed it for the same reason I am standing here warning you, Jeremiah says to them. Because you did not think your behavior is exempt from scrutiny. Or you think your behavior is exempt from scrutiny. It is not. And so here's what takes place. He goes on to say, but I have been watching, declares the Lord. And it shows that he's not fooled by our pretense. He's not fooled by our piety and knows what is all going on inside and outside and in between. His inspection cannot be invaded, evaded, for he is the one who observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them, the psalmist says. Those that claim the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob pays no heed. Yet who has formed the eye does not see and will repay for their wickedness, it says in Psalm 94. So ladies and gentlemen, listen to this. There's a New Testament picture of this, and it's Jesus the Christ. In Matthew 21, in Mark 11, and in Luke 19, listen to this. Christ Himself repeated the verdict and called the people inside the temple a den of robbers in connection to the temple at Jerusalem of His own day. Why? Because they didn't learn the lesson. And so what had happened? They sent the weeping prophet 
And then what does God do some many years later, 700 plus years later? He comes himself to tell them. And what did they do? They killed them. Why? Because they could not divorce their identity from their existence. And it is the same problem we face today. So the announcement of judgment has been made. Shiloh's at the center and God is going to wipe them out. And so when you look at this verse, 12 through 15, you can write down, Shiloh revisited and then here's the last part of this announcement of judgment. People use religion to compare themselves to others. That's the first one I meant to just give you. People, number three, you're, you've written down, people use religion to compare themselves to others. Well, I'm not a Catholic. Well, I'm not a Mormon. Well, I'm not a Baptist. Well, I'm not a this. I'm not a denominational person. Well, in fact, I don't believe anything. I'm free. Okay? People use religion to compare themselves to others. But I want to tell you in this last one, verse 15, is a very simple statement. Religion always disappoints. Religion always disappoints. He says these words. Look at verse 15 with me as we finish. Look what he says. I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. So he's saying, you know what? You don't have to go up to Shiloh. I'm just going to tell you what I did. And so what does he do? The people of Judah had not just the old example of the devastation of Shiloh to the north, they ought to have appreciated the significance of what happened more recently in the northern kingdom of Israel. And here it, the most prominent tribe is named Ephraim when they too had rejected the requirements of the Lord. I will thrust you from my presence just as I did your brothers. It is a solemn warning being more recent and it should impress them that much more vividly. So write this down. The, well, listen, the, the Lord realizes His people are trusting in religion. The Lord knows this today. And so what did God do to them back then? He took it away. And so the armies of Assyria came and destroyed Jerusalem because they would not repent. If you are worried about the church losing its freedom in America, the only way the church could lose its freedom in America is because it is filled with religious people in wrong relationship with God. It is not the strength of the government that can preserve or take away the church. It is Jesus Christ and His bride and our attention needs to be upon Him because religion disappoints. And so what you have here then in summation is simply this. What's wrong with religion? Hypocrisy. Why? Because it's a misplaced confidence. We, routine, we routinely hear people confess God we routinely hear people saying, speaking of His love. We routinely hear people talking about the grace of God. Yet we don't see in all that the Scripture says about divine love. And we reach false conclusions about the exclusivity of Jesus. Let me tell you something. 
if you just preach the message that God is love and nothing else, then you rob the gospel of its uniqueness and the centrality of the love of God itself, which is Jesus. We need to know God is love because He's also fire. And He is a consuming one. Modern people try to read God's Word selectively. You can't. In this passage, you have a threefold repetition. The temple, we have the temple, the temple, the temple. It's a mantra. People today say over and over again, the mantra, the mantra, whatever it is. The Judahites thought God's choice of the nation and His placement of the temple in Jerusalem meant that they would, He'd never allow the city to fall. Well, history shows otherwise. And when we read it, we see that they ignored the purpose of God, the purpose of the Lord. And see, I don't think we're going to make that case in the next generation or two. I think there's still the remnant here. We're learning to come to the ends of ourselves and the wonderful peace that comes from knowing the Lord. Real relationship, real revival, real changing. And it will begin at the house of God. The Bible says judgment must begin at the house of the Lord, not at the house of Congress. It is our job to be who we are to be before Him. A believer is an obedient follower of Jesus. Not perfect, but it is the bent of his or her heart. And the Lord chose the children of Jacob to become a holy nation in which we are a fulfillment of that and we do not obtain righteous status which we are justified or given citizenship in the kingdom of the Lord by what we do. We are citizens and we are made righteous by in the kingdom of God for the purpose of obedience as given to us by Christ Jesus. So what does this all boil down to? In the face of God, we've seen people become religion become religious to get what they want. People, we've seen that people use religion to fake a relationship with God. We've seen that people use religion to compare themselves to others. We see, we've seen religion disappoints and we've seen that religion has, is a misplaced confidence. So today as we go, we must ask ourselves, those of us who are of the redeemed, the people in grace, who have the answers to the days that lie ahead. We have the answer. Do we rest in God's salvation? Do you rest in it? Is it because you signed a card of commitment and brought it to the altar? Are you going forward in your life for the benefit of others seeing you? Instead, is your present possession of faith, is that what assures us that we belong to Jesus where you are now? Does that, does that speak to you? These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves, not that we once possessed, but whether we trust Him today. Trust Him enough to turn the news off. Trust Him today for our daily bread, not next year's buried rations in the backyard. No. Do we trust Christ alone today? Do we trust Him alone today? Because believing in God means we ought to love and value what God's love and values and therefore we ought to be the people God wants us to be. And remember that the worship of God is not appearing. It is active. It is a lively part of the complete Sacrifice God desires of all who claim Him and all who claim to be His. And consequently, 
It's what you and I should be doing all the days of our life, every day, is to worship our God. I am filled with hope because God gives us messages like this still to preach that is completely, totally applicable and relevant to you. Because this tells us the plan of success. And it's please Him and He'll take care of the rest. Amen? Would you stand? Heavenly Father, thank You for the truth that transforms. Thank You that You have ministered to us the Word of God this morning. We pray, Father, that if there is anything within us as we know there are, we ask, Father, that You would show them to us that we may confess them to You and that, Lord, we may enjoy the mercy we receive from that confession, knowing that if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and forgive us all of our unrighteousness. And so, Father, we now ask by way of benediction, may the God of peace Himself sanctify us completely, and may Your whole spirit and soul and body, our bodies, be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we thank You, Almighty God, that You have called us, for You are faithful, and You surely will do these things in us, in the power and for the glory and for the sake of Jesus Christ, I pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.